Thanks for clicking play on the East Lake Tri-Cities Talks podcast. If you're new to this, we're trying to be the best church option for people in the Tri-Cities who aren't typically into church. We hope today's talk inspires you to take next steps in doing life in the way Jesus modeled and taught. If you're ever interested in being a part of one of our in-person gatherings, they take place every Sunday at the Uptown Theater in Richland. Check the website for current times. And regardless of what you look like, who you voted for, or where your tattoos are, we'd love to have you. But for now, here's our most recent talk. Hey, welcome to Eastlake. We're so glad that you're here. My name is Brandon, I'm the teaching pastor. If it's your first time, picked a great day to come check us out. If you're watching online or watching a replay, we're thankful for you guys tuning in as well. We are on part five of six of a series we're calling Wandering in Darkness. It's a series on suffering because if you've ever experienced uh, suffering in life and, and like who hasn't, right? Um, in the thick of it, it can oftentimes feel like I'm just kind of wandering through life and things are really dark. And I don't know if that's the season that you're in or coming out of or are, you know, yeah, looking at it and saying that this is good material for tucking away for when those things happen. Because it's not a matter of if, it's just a, it's a matter of when we go through the suffering. And there's various forms of suffering, which is why we're looking at it from a couple of different angles. We are looking at the, the, uh, the experiences of suffering through four different biblical characters. Uh, we started out with Job and he was like this innocent sufferer who, and we've gone through that. We've gone through periods of I'm suffering and I really don't feel like I did anything wrong. Uh, then we talked about Samson last week and Samson was like, I did everything wrong and, and I'm experiencing suffering. That's another form of it too uh, because now I'm, I'm, I'm reaping what I sowed and so, but there's still suffering in there. So how, like, how do you, how do you navigate through some of that? Uh, and then today we're going to be talking about Abraham, where it's somewhere in between those two things. And that's a lot of times kind of where we live in life. Uh, we're not completely innocent and we're not completely, totally and, and utterly guilty. Uh, we're just like, you know, trying to make our way through life. And we, we, we have expectations of what we want and the happiness quotient that we want in life and how we want things to work out and the desires of our heart. And sometimes when those things aren't met, it sucks. And, uh, and we go through some suffering. So uh, Abraham makes a great kind of context for this. We'll finish this up next week uh, and do communion and all that kind of stuff. So make sure to lock in uh, for that. But the story of Abraham, it's a story uh, that if you grew up in church, you're kind of familiar with. It's a, it's a common one that we talk about in like our kids' rooms areas with like little flannel graphs. And here's the story. There's two big arcs in the storyline uh, of Abraham. Uh, one is this idea of a covenant, the Abrahamic covenant that's going to show up a lot. Like God reaches in like for the first time, in, in kind of humanity, he makes a deal, a, a unilateral covenant or a promise uh, with humankind. He reaches out to the person of Abraham and makes a promise, leave where you're from, leave your family, leave everything that you know and follow me into the wilderness. I have a plan for you. And so we're like, wow, Abraham celebrated for that. That's a big piece that we talk about. And then phase two, the other big part of the Abraham's life that we focus on is what's called the binding of Isaac or, or something that is famous for where God tells Abraham at one point, uh, take your son, the, your only son, the one that you love and sacrifice someone to me. We're going to get there. You're going to be like, wow. If, you, and if By the way, if you're like not familiar with church and that's out of the blue, then that one feels like, how are we going to solve that one? Exactly. That's been a big one for a really long time of where is the good in that? How can we believe in a good God? What kind of a church have I signed up for today? Don't worry. We'll get there. It's going to be great. But those are the two kind of major story arcs in between there. But in between those two kind of things, there's about a 45 year span where God has divine encounters with Abraham and talks to him about the desires of his heart. 
And the one thing that we realize early on about Abraham is the dude is obsessed with family. He wants a family so bad. God knows that. He knows who he's dealing with. And he, he, he works into this. Um, and he, he, he recognizes, I am going to uh, speak about this. His in t- the entire story of Abraham is bound and focused on a concern with children and not just one child, but many. And, and, and this thing is going to be celebrated, by the way. In fact, Abraham's story, um, though it starts in Genesis, his faith and his faith through suffering is highlighted even in the New Testament when the author of Hebrews goes on to kind of talk about in Hebrews chapter 11, champions of the faith, people who we should look to for inspiration and for courage. Abraham is one of the first ones and he shows up twice in the list because he's so good in these two different things. In in chapter uh, 11, verse eight of Hebrews, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place where he would later receive his inheritance, he obeyed and he went, even though he did not know where he was going. And then in 17, By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. And to think in those two things, the takeaways or whatever are, listen, you know, if somebody like me in a position like mine stands up before you and goes, if God calls you to somewhere and and, and you don't know where it's at and he's just calling you and, and would you leave everything to obey God in that moment, right? That's like one of the takeaways a lot of times. And the other one is, if God called you to sacrifice your child, would you do it, right? And then we're not gonna go there. That's not... If, if those are the only two takeaways that you get from that, I think it's kind of a disingenuous take at what is actually being asked about that. So we're gonna dive into that story a little bit more and realize what is at stake. But it's important to know who it is that we're dealing with. And what we're dealing with is a man who his, the desires of his heart is to have a heritage, is to have descendants, is to have people come after him. It's to, a part, to be a part of a big family, to have something to go home to at the end of the day and be like, this is my bounty. This is what I've worked so hard. Among the first thing we learned is that he's married to a woman who cannot bear him children, which seems like immediately a problem. If this is a story and this is a novel, the conflict is real clear. He really wants this, but he's married to somebody who can't have kids. There's an infertility problem issue there. And among the last things we learned from him is that his two children that he's gonna have, Ishmael and Isaac, have come together in order to bury him. And we'll get to why this is significant in a little bit. But God speaks to Abraham is recorded eight different times. And it starts when he's about 75 years old. And his last one that we get is about when he's about 115 years old. So there's about a 40 uh, 40 year period here uh, where eight recorded conversations on which God visits Abraham to speak to him. And in every single one of them, either partially or total concern is some issue involving children or children of children. Behold, I am your God. Abraham, don't worry. I'm gonna make you into a great nation because he knows who he's dealing with. The guy is obsessed with progeny. The guy sees a 12 passenger van and says to himself, I can feel that, right? That's who we're dealing with in this moment. Every episode uh, that he visits uh, include at least one divine speech in in which God makes promises either implicitly or explicitly that he will have offspring. And again, God knows who he's dealing with in this. And and so this obsession with kids, this obsession with family, the question that comes to you, you know, that early on, somebody like me has to ask and and posit this in a way is, have you ever met somebody like that? You ever met somebody like that? Or perhaps more importantly, you ever dated somebody like that? How'd that go? Not very well. We're like, I think we're on two different pages with this sort of thing. Or maybe it went really well. And that's, you know, you're here, but you're watching this in the lobby because you got kids clanging all over and you pulled up in a little passenger van. Great to see you. Thanks for coming. But we got kids areas. I mean, you know, whatever, all that kind of stuff. But God is saying to him, listen, trust me and I will give you the desires of your heart. I know what you're obsessed with. I know what you want deeply in, in life. I know the one thing that if you feel like you go through life and get to the end and don't have this, you will feel like life was incomplete and life wasn't there. 
um, uh, uh, trust me, if you will trust me, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna give you descendants. He says like the stars in the, in, in the night sky or like the sand on a seashore. It's gonna be a big deal. And it's this unilateral promise. And we're gonna see this over and over again. God's gonna do this a lot of times, not just with Abraham, but he becomes the archetype for how God works. Going to creation, going to humanity, reaching out and offering unilateral promises, meaning, meaning this is not a contractual agreement. You do this and I promise to respond with this. Uh, I do this and you promise to respond with this. I'm doing this for you, but I'm gonna need you to trust me. I'm not, I don't need you to do anything for me because there's nothing that benefits God by us trusting him. He doesn't get bigger or better or stronger or, or has more leverage in, in the universe or whatever. It doesn't matter to him. But what he does want is like, I just need you to trust me. I need to know that when I say I'm gonna do something, you respond with trust. And, and, and what we're gonna see over and over again is this, this dynamic, this relationship at play between I'm saying something, do you trust me? Do you trust me? Do you trust me? Your actions and your responses reveal how much you actually trust me. Let's bring it home for a little bit. Let me illustrate it in kind of a, a more personal setting for us because this, this element of trust in relationships, uh, I always say this about the uh, relationship, where there is no trust, there is no relationship. So even in a marriage, if I, if I can't trust you, there's no relationship. If there's no trust in this business relationship, there's not really a relationship. We're just contractually obligated to each other or whatever. But the relationships flourish when trust is at its highest. And so in interpersonal relationships, uh, if you were to say, you know, to, to trust me or, or to kind of work through a process of trust, if you were to come up to me this week and be like, dude, we need to go camping this weekend. Next weekend's Labor Day. It's the end of summer. Let's close out summer in a big way. Let's go up camping, just you and me, and we'll, we'll go up into the woods. And here's the deal. Um, we're gonna take one car and you're gonna drive. And I'm saying that to you, you're gonna drive because you know I don't like to drive. Anyways, uh, and... Uh, we, we try and plan what it exactly we're gonna pack so that we don't double pack because that's like the worst thing to get up there and be like, we have two of these? That's crazy. Who needs two of these? Um, and if you came to me and said, listen, I don't like propane fire pits. I like real, I wanna be, I, wanna, I want my clothes to stink for weeks because we are burning real wood. And I don't wanna bring firewood up there. I'm a naturalist. I like to burn what's already there. So I want us, and it's gonna be cold. So here's what we're gonna do. Um, we're going to bring an axe. Do you want to bring it or I bring it, right? And you, you look at me and I say to you, listen, I, I'm, I'll bring the axe. And, and you, you then respond with, okay, but here's the deal. I really want this to happen. Like you cannot forget this axe. It's going to be cold at night. I don't want to freeze my butt off. So like, look at me. Do you promise? And I'm like, I promise. Look me in my eyeballs. And, and you're, you're, you're this concerned because you've either camped with me before or you've talked to my wife about my forgetfulness or... You just, you know, you're just, I'm like covering my bases. Like you, you, you might verbalize that you trust me. Okay, I, I trust you. And then an hour later, you bring it back up just to see if I remember a little bit. You kind of play this game. And I'm like, and eventually I, I look, I sit you down. I'm like, I promise, listen, I know this is a big deal for you. I promise I'm gonna bring an ax. Because I, I know how much this means to you. And then we get up to the campsite and we're unpacking, we're setting up tents, we're doing all this kind of stuff. I go back to your car, I look under your seat and expertly hidden underneath one of the passenger seats is an ax. And I'm like, bro, what is happening here? And you're like, oh, what? How did that get in there? I must've left that from my last camping trip. And then I have to choose to, whether I believe you or don't believe you. But, and I don't believe you. But so what that communicates to me is you don't actually trust me, which could be smart. That might be a smart way to go through life. But- that's, that's what I'm talking about. There's, 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 this, there's this spot in which I, I verbalize that I trust you, but it's not what you say. It's the actions in response to this that reveals if you actually do trust me. Did you bring an ax or did you not bring an ax? 
That's kind of verbalizing the trust in all of this way. So uh, God shows up to Abraham in the first recorded speech. Abraham's about 75 years old. God makes him promise to make him into a great nation. And the command goes forth like this. It's a pretty famous command. Leave your land, leave your family, leave your father's home. Trust me into the wilderness. I'm leading you into a promised land. I'm leading you into Canaan. There's gonna be some other things that are going on. But it is essentially ambiguous, but I am asking you to, I'm spending most of my time asking you to leave something. And here's what we know from the end of chapter 11 in the book of Genesis. This comes from one of the very first uh, stories. So Genesis chapter 11 is kind of setting the stage for the entire biblical landscape. In Genesis chapter 11, we know that Abraham had a, had a dad who uh, their, uh, Abraham's brother dies. And so they leave where they're from and they kind of leave. Because I think sometimes when tragedy happens, you just want to get away, right? I just need to, I don't want to be here. This is too familiar. They already leave into a, a kind of a foreign land and they take with him Abraham's nephew and Abraham's wife. So Abraham, Sarah, and Lot, and then the father. The father ends up dying. And this is when the command comes to, to Abraham. Abraham, here's my thing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you into a great. And I know, that, I know you care about this so greatly. So leave where you're from. Leave your father's home, leave everything behind and come follow me. And there's a sense in which he's not asking him to do too much because some of that's already there. Some of that's already in place. I've already left home. So my tendency would be after my dad dies to perhaps go back home. But what you're asking me to do is to leave that dream behind and to leave everything I know and to leave my father's home and step out into some sort of a vulnerable, it's just me and it's just my wife. That's what God is calling. I want a clean slate. I want what I'm going to do with you is you're going to know so deeply that it became because of my orchestration of life events that you didn't make this happen, but I made this happen. So I want you to start completely clean. I want you to start completely new. Here's what we find out in verse five. He took his wife, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they'd accumulated and the people they'd acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan and they arrived there. What was the command? I want you to leave your father's house. I want you to leave everything. I want you to go with almost nothing. I want a blank slate. You can bring your wife, but that's about it. And what did he do? He takes his wife, he takes his nephew and all the possessions. It's almost as if God's telling him, don't bring an ax. I got you, I promise, I got an ax. And you're like, cool, 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 sure thing. And you're like, what? How did that get in there? What's Lot doing here? Why is he here? I thought I told you, yeah, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I, I, so why, so then the question becomes, if you're reading this and you're, you're reading it skeptically, you're going, why bring Lot with him? Well, what is he thinking? What's, what's the point of, is it just companionship, perhaps? Or perhaps God's telling Abraham, I'm gonna do something with you. You're gonna have such a, like a following after this. You're gonna have so much things to kind of bequeath to. And, 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 and Abraham's going, that sounds great. Now, if that doesn't work out, I wanna have somebody a bit younger than me to kind of hand things off to. So Lot's here, but he's not really my son. So it's fine. He's a backup plan. It's I'm going through life. I trust you, but there's always a backup plan. I trust you, but backup plan. And you know that doesn't work out, right? You ever dated somebody that had a backup plan? I mean, I'm yours. Yeah, yeah, we're good. Backup plan. You're like, that's not really trusting me, man. We're not really dating at this point. We've got to call this thing off, right? Anyway, that's a whole nother series. That's another, that's a relationship series we'll get into at some point. But Abraham is in a sense responding in case this whole kid thing doesn't work out, I need to have somebody to give my stuff to. And if all else fails, Abraham seems to be thinking God's promise to make him to a great, great nation could perhaps be made true, if not through an actual son, through some sort of a foster a, a son or adopted son. So how do we understand or how should we understand Abraham's attitude toward God as a promise maker? 
Anytime that we uh, respond with a backup plan to somebody who says, trust me, um, and we, we have our own kind of thing in place, we're communicating that we don't actually believe that he, what he's saying is true or he's unable to kind of follow through with this or I just don't trust your reliability as a promise maker. So what do we know? Well, on one hand, we know that he actually does leave and he, you know, he's, pro- he's commended for actually leaving where he's from and kind of stepping out into the wilderness. So that's good. On one hand, he's got this, but on the other hand, he's like, Hiding a hatchet under his seat. You know, it's not, not an ax, but it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a foster kid. It's a hatchet, basically, right? This is going to be a perpetual pattern in the life of Abraham. There's going to be eight episodes where God speaks to him. And in almost every episode, there's a little bit of something on the side. There's always a plan B for Abraham. It gets smaller and smaller. And the more trust, there's like this chart where the more trust is there, the, the less of the backup plan happens to be, or the less, the, the less involved, or the more chances, or whatever. It, it, we, we definitely see this. And that's the growing level of trust. As the growth comes and as the trust develops, less and less of I'm hedging my bets. I'm hedging my bets less and less the more I, I, I begin to trust with this. Somehow, Abraham believes and also does not believe that God's promise is true. He therefore also believes and does not believe that God is a reliable promise keeper. And that's great. That's speaks so much to our existence too. We believe, but then also kind of like there's part of us that doesn't believe. I want to believe. I just find myself, uh, I, I, I want to believe that you have this all in control. But I also, while you're figuring that out, I'm doing my own little piece on the side to try and make my own solution over here. We, for the sake of time, we're going to skip to the fourth uh, divine promise. So there's going to be three that have already occurred where in all three of these encounters, at least implicitly or explicitly, God said, don't worry, I got you covered. Something's going to happen. You're going to have a big family. Don't worry. The minivan's going to be huge. You're going to love minivan. It's going to be awesome. By the time of God's fourth visitation to Abraham, in spite of the three preceding divine promises about his family and his descendants, Abraham continues to be childless. You can kind of begin to sense the frustration and the questioning and the Man, I thought you were going to have this covered by now. The only thing that has changed in the story is that things have gone sideways now with Lot. They kind of, he took him with him and they went to this land. They begin to kind of develop as a people. They begin to grow. There's only so much land and so many animals and so many people to take care of. So eventually they go to the spot and they're like, here's land over here and here's land over here. Lot, you pick one, I'll go to the other spot. So they divide areas. So they're no longer living together and doing their thing. So his backup plan has now kind of failed. God orchestrates, listen, I know what you're doing. I'm going to take your little side hustle that you're doing and I'm going to bless it over here but I, I will get what I want. I'm going to push you over here. Now you're going to be in the spot where it is just you and now you can know. But here's what we find this. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision and it says Abram. Abram was his former name. He got it changed to Abraham. That's for another time but I'm going to say Abraham for the sake of our time together just because it works out better for me. Um, Do not be afraid of Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. And it's like, he's reminding this moment, remember reward, I, I am that for you. Don't worry. Like this is like a little bit more implicit hidden thing, but like, yeah, you keep talking about reward. The problem is I just haven't seen it, right? It'd be like me showing up to the campsite and you going, did you bring that ax? I'm like, got it, man. Cool, can I see it? Don't worry, man, I got you. I got it, I promise, I promise. And you're going, yeah, except for like, it's getting kind of dark. We probably need to go do something real quick. Can I just like, can I just see the handle? I just want to see the handle of it. I don't need much. I just want to know, I just want to know that you're, just give me a little something right here. But then Abraham said, sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer, son of Damascus. In other words, I used to have Lot as kind of the heir to my stuff. Now I'm not going with a family member. I have resigned myself to now it's like a servant, which is a lot less. I, I understand that. I'm trusting you a little bit more. And Abram said, you have not, you've still given me no children. So a servant in my household will now be my heir. 
So in one sense, I've left you, I've, I've left, I followed you into this, I'm doing all of these things, and yet I maintain some sort of a, a, a hedge of some sort. On, on one sense, he's still not trusting God fully. He's still kind of going with this plan B. On the other sense, he's still trying to hold God accountable to his promise and cling to his goodness. You promised that this is gonna happen. I mean, he's complaining about it, which means that he still values it to some degree. There's still some sense in which he believes it because if he didn't believe it anymore, he'd be like, oh yeah, sure, great, we're good. Hey, we're good, I got this figured out, we're good. In some sense, he clank, like he's holding on to it, but on the other hand, he's establishing, he's kind of making up this whole alternative option in case things don't work out. God responds with, this man is not your heir. Go outside, look up at the stars. I'm telling you what I'm gonna do for you. You have no idea how good this is gonna be. Verse eight, but Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know? How can I know? How can I, like, I just, like, I believe that you brought an ax. I just haven't seen it. And I just need to, like, could you tell me where it is? You know, like, where, what bag did you bring it in? Like, where did you hide this sort of thing? And rather than rebuking him, God provides him another confirmation, this time in a dream state. He says, fall asleep. I'm going to give you this dream. I'm going to prove to you. I'm going to tell you again. I'm going to, make, I'm going to visualize the promise again. But again, if somebody promised you something and you said, give me a sign that's going to happen. And they just said, I promise. And they give you another promise to you. Like they're still just clinging to the same calling card that they just tried the first time. So there's, there's not really an advancement in this other than God continues to call them to trust. Are you going to trust me? I need you to trust me. I need you to trust me. Now, listen. There are 25 years between God's first promise to Abraham and the birth of Isaac. For 25 years, 25 years, all Abraham has ever heard is, I got you, I got you, trust me, trust me. Imagine that, why is he taking so long to act? Why not remove Sarah's barrenness immediately after the first problem and the first promise? Why make any promises at all? If God wants Abraham to have a large posterity, then why doesn't God simply ensure at the outset that she's not barren in this. What is happening here? It's pretty clear from us on, on our side of things, because we know how the story ends, right? We know that he's going to eventually have a son. We know that in the course of humanity, in the course of the history of the world, uh, the three largest religions in the world, uh, Christianity, Islam, and, and uh, Judaism, are going to identify Abraham as sort of a, an ancient father, like we're all kind of descendants from Abraham. That's going to be their, their big thing. Like every, all three religions go, that's a hero of the faith. That's a big deal. That's a big name, I mean, God essentially comes through on his promise. We know that to be true, but again, we're looking at it from the outside or, or the after the fact sort of things in this way. But what's he trying to do in this moment? He's trying to elicit a level of trust. He's trying to shorten the time between what I say and how much you trust me and your response to my trust, which shows me that you actually do this. And he, listen, this is gonna be an archetype for how God works in our lives too. He's gonna take what we believe and our little backup plans for, I believe that you have some things planned for me. I think it's gonna be good, but I am gonna kind of do some things on the side. I know you said you're gonna provide, but like, I'm gonna make sure I got a job. I'm gonna make sure this is gonna happen. I know you said like, you know, we're gonna find somebody special for me. It's gonna be awesome. I'm just gonna, gonna go do this on the side and we'll, we'll figure this out. We'll figure that out. It's not that I don't trust you. Um, it's just, you know, I wanna make sure. I wanna make sure. Even God's promise to Abraham in this moment is generalized. He could have said in the very first encounter with Abraham, listen, Abraham, 25 years from now, you're gonna have a son. Your wife, Sarah, is gonna bear that son, not anybody else. You're gonna name him Isaac. 
He's gonna grow up. He's gonna survive that questionable infancy spot where a lot of kids die. He's gonna have uh, his own kids and it's gonna be this mighty nation that's gonna result of this. But that's not what he does. He's very ambiguous in this. By starting with a vague promise, go out and count the stars in the sky, the sand in the seashore. And he's like, that sounds good, but like, it's all kind of vague. God engages Abraham in a process that requires Abraham to grow in trust of God's promises and his goodness. And that's how he does it with us too. He's not specific a lot of times. He's like, I just need you to trust me. What do you, what, what's the big picture? I, I don't wanna reveal that to you yet. Here's, here's the next right step. You wanna do that? You start here. Sometimes God only gives us enough light and knowledge for what we're supposed to do next. Even though we so desperately wanna be like, what's the big plan? How are you gonna work all of this out for my good? I know that you're good and I'm going through suffering and I would really like to know how this in the end is gonna be good for, my, for who I am and what you're making me to be. Because right now it feels very dark and it feels very lonely and I feel very, very lost and I feel like I'm wandering in darkness. And God goes, I know, I know, but trust me, I'm good. Here's what I need you to do next. And you're like, that's, I would be more willing to do this if you tell me everything. And he's like, I don't, that's not how this works. Because if I tell you everything, there's not trust involved. And he so badly and desperately wants a relationship with us and relationships are characterized by trust. 25 years, eventually Sarah, his wife, comes up with a plan. She's got a servant, a handmaid, if you will. She says to, to Abraham, here's the deal. I can't have kids. I know that. I'm a disappointment to you. I can see it in your face. I'm a disappointment to myself. It's so hard. Take my handmaid, have a child with her. They're going to make a show about this on Hulu a few years from now. It's going to be great. It's going to be a smash away hit, right? Uh, and, and have a child with her. And then, then we'll at least start the family uh, in this way. The child she bears is Ishmael. It's Abraham's first son. And it's almost as if God, near Abraham goes out and goes, a son, we did it, God. And God's like, that wasn't the plan. I told you it's going to... That's, that's not really your son. I mean, that is your son, but there's, there's, that's, that's not how this, you, you've kind of manufactured your own solution in this way. It's almost as if they're saying, I know, you'd bring, I know you told me you'd bring an ax, but I saw this cute little chainsaw at a yard sale last week and I just had to pick it up. So that's why we're here, right? This is him consolidating his options here in this way. Unsurprisingly, the situation goes bad. Sarah starts off thinking this is gonna be a great idea, great plan. Then all of a sudden Hagar gets pregnant and fast. And if you've ever dealt with infertility and you've had a friend who's like, we didn't even try and we're pregnant. You're like, I'm so happy for you. And I don't want to see you anymore. And we're not friends anymore. And uh, that's a struggle. And that, so it's unsurprising in that moment. She's like, I, I don't, there's uncomfortability, right? And so Hagar leaves. She feels like I'm not welcome in this home anymore. And then an angel confronts her and says, it's okay. I got, I got a plan. I know this this isn't the way that I wanted it to work out, but don't worry, I'm going, I've heard you and I'm gonna bless your son. He's gonna be a, he's gonna be a father of, of many nations. So God takes our mess and he continues to redeem it, even though that's not what he planned for himself to be able to do. She comes back and she returns home. Imagine being another servant in that household and watching Sarah kind of orchestrate things and things go south, Hagar leaves, she comes back and now she's fully pregnant. And it's like, oh my gosh, you guys, it's the most awkward episode of Real Housewives of Canaan ever. You gotta watch it, it's so good. All right. Ishmael is born when Abraham is 86. I'm gonna throw a few years out in terms of how old they were and... and, and uh, you know, it's, it's tough not to get lost in the whole, how can they live to be 140 and 200 and what all this kind of stuff. It doesn't, it, it doesn't matter. For them, even, even with this, and, um, at some point, even they're shocked when they have kids at an older age, okay? So it's like, 
they're like, this is impossible. This isn't going to work. When he's born, at, when Abraham is 86, uh, this is 11 years after the first promise. So for 11 years, God has said, I just need you to trust me. I just need you to trust me. Then Abraham manufactures kind of his own option and be like, this, good, good, we did it, God. When Abraham is 99 and Ishmael is 13, there's a fifth encounter. God shows up again for a fifth time and shows up with Abraham and says, I'm gonna bless you and your name's gonna be great. And I'm gonna give you a child of your own. Verse 17, Abraham fell face down. He laughed and he said to himself, will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Even, even he is like, finds the whole thing kind of a bit incredulous. Uh, like this isn't like, I'm a hundred. You've had 11 years to figure this out. And you just didn't do it. And then he goes, will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? He brings her age into it, which feels a bit shallow and a bit mean. But, and Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. So just to be clear, God has said, I haven't forgot about you. I still have a plan. You're gonna have a child of your own. Internally, Abraham's working through that process. Externally, he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally on board with that ready for the child of my own, whenever you're ready for that. Um, in the meantime, just as an aside, perhaps you could give Ishmael a blessing. Perhaps this, if that doesn't work out, might have something to kind of go with. Then God said, yes, I will bless Ishmael. Even though it's like this, like you took your own, you know, you put your own hound to the plow a little bit and you, you kind of created your own mess. I will continue to redeem that. But your wife, Sarah, will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. He's now getting more um, specific in his approach. It's not ambiguous, like walking to the wilderness, I'll tell you where to go. You're gonna have a child. It's gonna be from Sarah. Um, and you'll call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I've heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. And he will be the father of 12 rulers and I will make him into a great nation. By the time we get to the seventh of eight, so that was the fifth one. By the time we get to the seventh of the eight encounters, Abraham will have had uh, Isaac. He's been, uh, he's about two or three years old. So we're now fast forward a few years. Now he's had Isaac, his own child from his own wife. This is like fully in, on board with all of this, okay? He, Isaac is now about two or three years old and is past the precarious stage of infant mortality. It looks like he's going to make it, right? I mean, that's a big concern for a lot of these people in this age group. Uh, a, lot of people, a lot of children would die, they're frail, and, and you know, they didn't have the, all the kind of stuff. So not only did you have to survive childbirth, but you also had to survive the first two years uh, of life. And once it's become clear to Abraham and Sarah, it looks like the child of our own is going to make it. Sarah wants Hagar and Ishmael out of the house for good. I sent her away once, she came back, she's had a kid. Now he's 13, 14, 15 years old. There's some sort of an episode where he kind of says something at the, at the weaning stage or like this like little party to celebrate, like the third birthday party when everybody's having cake and you know, doing whatever. Ishmael makes some sort of a, a scene in regards to uh, Isaac and she's like, out, I want him out. I don't want him here. This, this kid will not share in my blessing. Get rid of that slave woman and her son for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son, Isaac. It's pretty harsh, but she goes in, in the privacy probably of their own house or own, own tent or whatever. She's like, listen, Abraham, I want her out. And he's like, where's she gonna go? We're in a desert. If we send her out now, they're surely gonna die. And Sarah's, and I'm making this up, but I, I think this is probably part of the, the, the conversation. That's not my problem. 
You know what I mean? I want her out. But they'll die out there. Dinner is at six. Don't be late. Make sure it's done, right? That's essentially what's happened. And, and there's a sense in which this idea of what is she saying? She's not saying, she's saying, but she's not saying, I want them out of the picture. Read between the lines. I want them dead. Because what she's doing is saying, just give them into the wilderness and let nature take care of them. This is the same way the Romans would treat the birth of a daughter. They would keep their first daughter because you, know, you want to make sure you have some sort of things. But then if they had, there's letters that are written that we have of them saying, if it's a son, keep it. We're going to raise it. It's going to be great. If it's a daughter, we've already had one. It let her, they call it exposing them to the nature. Let her outside, just let her die, basically. And it's not us killing her. It's nature killing her. It's not us, though. We're removing ourselves from the responsibility of murder. It's not really murder. It's just like, you know, nature doing its thing. And that's essentially what they're saying. Like, well, she can't stay here. Well, if, we go, if they go on the deck, we're in the middle of nowhere. They're going to die. Again, we didn't do that. Nature did that. God did that. Whatever the case may be, right? The bonds that must have already developed would have made this an incredibly painful, delicate, troublesome scenario for Abraham. Because probably for 16 years, Ishmael was... Abraham's only link to what comes beyond. He, he's like, I still trust God, but like, this is tangible. This is what I see and this is what I know. So when she says, let him go, there's probably a relationship already developed there. He's got this relationship with this kid to be like, I like this kid. Like, he's not bad. Like, he's, and he's, and he's, he's, he's mine. Like, there's, he's still me. I know he's not you and that makes it really hard. And this is so hard to kind of live with this. And, and you're having to struggle with this. And trust me, it's not easy for me either, but it's a little easier for me. Um, it's still my son. It's still my child. This matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. Verse 12. But God said to him, do not be so distressed about your boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you because it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the slave into a nation also because he is your offspring. Listen. This is critical for understanding what's about to come next with the sacrifice of Isaac. God comes to Abraham and says, listen to your wife, which is crazy. My wife's spouting murder. I know. Okay, trust me, I'm gonna take care of the boy. Everything's gonna be great. I promise that I will take care of him. Listen to your wife. He offers Abraham an out out of an awkward family situation through sending him out, which is essentially murder, but in his way of saying, this is what God told me I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to trust in the goodness of God that what I'm doing, which is clearly murder, is not gonna result in the death of my son. I am trusting you that this is gonna work out. Now, as a byproduct, it also helps me out with my home situation, with my wife and with my actual son or my firstborn son through my wife, which is gonna be the heir and the way that God is continuing to work. So Abraham goes through with it. He sends him off with a little bit of bread, a little bit of water. And the question then becomes, if you're an astute reader, kind of thinking through this and thinking logically about this and rationalizing all of this, does he do this because he believes God is good and will keep his promises? Or is he doing this because he wants to guard his heart's desire and his domestic well-being? Is he obeying God because he believes God is ultimately good and can be trusted that this is going to be okay? Or because it fits well with my long-term dream, which is to have a raise a family of my own, and do this sort of thing? That's the question. That's the tension. That's the context and the setup for what comes next. Here we go. Genesis chapter 22, verses one and two. Sometime later, we don't know how long later, probably it looks like 
um, Isaac's about a teenager um, based on some of the other stuff. So he said to him, God shows up for the seventh time or eighth time, excuse me, his final kind of encounter. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. I mean, at this point, Abraham's familiar with the voice of God. He knows who it is. He's not like, who is this? I'm, I'm right here. Here I am. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. And there's no, in the response to this, what, I mean, this is the thing, like God's saying, all right, I need you to trust me with something. And what's the response? And the response from Abraham is noticeably silence. And previously, in all of the other seven, eight uh, scenarios where God proposes something, most, or, uh, Abraham's gonna ask for clarification. He's gonna ask for explanation. At one point, uh, God says, I'm gonna destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham goes into this like negotiation mode with God. Hey, what if I find like 40 people who are like, you know, good. Will you then save the city? And God's like, okay, 40 people. And he's like, good, 40, 40, 40 is great. I think I get 40, but I know I could get 30. So what about 30? Would you do 30? And it's like this big going back and forth. There's this negotiating banter with God, trying to change his mind. I question your goodness. I don't know why you're wanting to destroy this city. Um, so I'll be the good one in here and, and, and you know, whatever. It's, it's like this weird thing. And in this moment, what we see is a progression. What we see is he doesn't respond like this the first time because God knows if I had done this too early, there would have been no way that he follows through with this. But for 45 years, and over eight episodes of him learning to trust in my goodness and that I do have a plan and that I will take whatever it is that he does and redeem it for good, that I am in control, that I orchestrate all of these things, that you can trust me. I've been good. I've, have I not proven my goodness over and over and over again? Here's what I want you to do. So it's not in the absence of proof that Abraham all of a sudden like weirdly goes, all right, whatever you say, man, I'm in. Something else is at play here. Something else is going on. There's no request for explanation. He's always hedged his bets with God, but not this time. There's no ax in the car. If you didn't bring it, we're gonna freeze. Genesis chapter two, verse three says this. Early the next morning. Early the next morning. Uh, my youth pastor growing up, his name was Jeremy. I was in, he spoke at our youth ministry for like seven years when I was in there, like middle school and all through high school. And anytime he would preach this message, um, he would always say, man, I think I would have slept in that day. That was his, so Jeremy, if you're watching, that's for you. Um, early the next morning, I'd sleep in. Abraham got up and he loaded up his donkey. And it's not implausible to suppose that when God commands Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, I, Isaac is somewhere in his adolescence, right? Reasonably close, in other words, to the age that Ishmael was when he got sent away. And there's, there's all kinds of different stuff in, in this too. Like, so when, when Abraham hears the words of God that says, take your son, your only son, it's got to dig a little bit. He's not his only son. He's like, you led me this spot once before. I sent my son away into the wilderness. And for all intents and purposes, there's a scenario in which Abraham does, and I think a very plausible scenario, Abraham does not know how it ended up. I don't think he knows if Ishmael's alive or dead. He'd be left to assume he's probably dead. People don't survive in the wilderness without food and water, without people protective. I mean, everything, all, the, all of the factors in this. He's probably dead. I, I'm trusting in your goodness that you said you'd take care of him, but I don't know, really know how that worked out. And now I hear you saying, take your son, your only son. And it's like a dagger in my heart of 
I'm here again. I'm in this scenario where I'm being forced in the spot where I have to choose save or sacrifice. Send my son into the wilderness. A little different this time. I've got a little bit more hands-on approach of this. The only thing different this time is when the first time God said, send your son out into the wilderness, there was already a backup plan in place. Abraham looked and he goes, there's Ishmael and there's my other son, Isaac. I can send this one away because I have now a backup plan. But on this time, when it comes around, there is no backup plan. There's nothing. Take your son, your only son, and sacrifice him in a place that I'm telling you to go to. In other words, I'm challenging the desires of your heart. I'm testing your trust. Do you trust me? Do you trust in my goodness? Do you trust that I will continue to be good? And now there is no backup plan. What are you going to do? Now, I think it's important to contrast these two things, right? Abraham sent Ishmael out to wander in the darkness, believing he was doing the right thing. But that was then when his self-interest was strongly on the side of supposing that God would keep his promises. Because after all, when you asked me to do this thing and send Ishmael away, I had my son. I also had domestic home life that was really, really complicated. And that worked really well with my complicated domestic home life. So is he saying, I was, I chose this because I trust you, but also in saying that I trust you, it really helped out with other things in life. It worked well with what I wanted. And now I'm being presented with the opportunity to say, I trust you again, but it doesn't work well with what I wanted. There's nothing to go off of. Is he, if he's willing to go through with this now, which is simply, essentially the same thing, but this time there's no established backup clause, will we not suppose that Abraham in effect used God's promise to rationalize his own actions when it suited what he wanted the first time? And that Abraham is now doubting God and hanging back because his heart's desire is at stake and his, regard, his self-regarding interests point the other way. If Isaac or if Abraham refuses to entrust Isaac to God's promises now, will he not be inclined to see his willingness to cast Ishmael out as a monstrous act towards his own son? Rendered all the more sleazy and worse because he couched it in the nature of hypocrisy of religion? Or this, in asking Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, God is asking Abraham what he would have done in the case of Ishmael if self-interest and trust in God had been in opposite sides instead of converging together. Essentially what he's doing is you've already sent a son to die into the wilderness and you trusted me, but that was convenient for you. What if I make it really inconvenient for you? Where's the trust at now? What do we see with all of this? And one of the best parts too, he says, I want you to do it in the region of Moriah, which is about a three-day journey. So you're gonna have a few days to think about it. I'm not asking you in the moment. I want this to kind of like roll around in your head for a little bit while you navigate this. Do you trust me or do you trust me when it's convenient for you? Or do you make hard decisions and be like, this is what God wanted me to do. You're like, yeah, but let's not really trust. I'm gonna skip hashing through the details of the ending, mostly because you know how it ends. He throws him on an altar, lifts up the the knife. No, 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 don't do it, don't don't do it, don't, don't, don't kill him. And, you know, I know that there's a skeptical, you know, side of this. If you're coming at this from a religion's dangerous and it's a crutch for people who are weak-minded and, and this is a, you know, are we really like celebrating attempted child sacrifice at this moment? Like that's what, we're, that's what we've devolved to. Um, I, I, I get that. I, I think that what's happening here is that in the story, as it plays out, God 
Abraham saying this, God, you've proven yourself to be good over and over and over and over again. I'm clinging to that goodness. And somehow, I think in this scenario, honestly, Abraham probably didn't think that even if he went through with it, Isaac was going to somehow die. In fact, the author of Hebrews speaks of this. Verse 19 of Hebrews, going back to that, you know, the celebration of Abraham was a giant man of faith. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. So in, in a sense, I don't think Abraham was like, I'm about to do this. He's like, I don't know what's gonna happen, but I am clinging to the fact that God's good and somehow something's gonna happen that's gonna be good. Because all I have to go off of is him taking everything that I've ever done and making it good. The truly immoral, because we go, that's an immoral stance. The truly immoral response on Abraham's part would be to appear to trust God's promise to preserve Ishmael, but then to act as if God could not be entrusted with Isaac. God, I trust you that you'll take care of this child in the wilderness. But then I don't trust you over here. Well, then you didn't really trust him over here either. That was just super convenient for you. Like Job, Abraham's story illustrated someone who's willing to cling to the goodness of God amidst the suffering, learning to trust that he is in control and his goodness will be revealed in the end. And so in that sense, Abraham is a heroic, towering figure of massive trust in God, except he's also human. And this is one of the best parts of the story that never gets enough airplay. That later on, uh, Isaac, when he's a full-grown adult, would marry Rebecca, and they would also have problems uh, with fertility issues, which has got to be the most frustrating thing for Abraham, being like, Sarah had that. Rebecca, is it something in the water? What is happening here? God, you're working against me in so many different areas. You keep saying you're going to bless me, and then even my, even my one child, which I don't have a tribe, I can't even fill up a smart car at this point, <laughs> let alone a 12-passenger van. Um, this isn't working out, Right? So what, what, is, what does Abraham do later on? This is after trusting God with potentially sacrificing Isaac. He sleeps with his concubine. His wife dies. He sleeps with his concubine and he begins to have more kids. We know that Ishmael and, uh, and Isaac are not the only child. As it turns out, he's gonna have six children with a woman named Ketubah. He's trying to even solve the equation after this, this whole thing. He's trying to make it make sense. He really wants to fill that van, guys. So even this heroic person of the faith later on falls back into, I just have a little pocket knife. I, I know you said you'd bring an ax. I just, just a little something, just in case. I just didn't want to leave it all up to chance. But I do trust you. I, I promise that I do. I love that because it's so human for us, right? Like, God, I want to trust you, but I, 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 there's a lingering thing for me. I guess he's human after all. So for us, I don't know why God waits 25 years to come through on his promises. I don't know why he starts off ambiguously when he could have spoke with clarity and it would have made a whole lot more sense other than I think he's trying to build trust, which is the most important thing. And I don't know exactly why you're suffering the way that you are. And I don't think, I don't know how it all plays out. And I don't know how it turns out for your goodness. And you go, how, how could this be good for me? I don't understand how this could be good for me. I don't know. But here's what I do know. What we see over and over and over in scripture is stories and stories and stories. At, time after time, God going, I'm good. I promise that I'm good. Cling to my goodness. Trust me in my goodness. Trust me that what I'm asking of you is for your good, that somehow it does turn out for your good, that you might not understand it and it might not happen at the timeline that you're wanting, the way that you're wanting, and you're gonna go through life having backup plans and doing all these kinds of things. And I'm gonna continue to bless even your backup plans. I'm gonna redeem the situation even in light of that. But trust me, trust me that I've got it in control. And that is really hard. It is really difficult. And it can feel like long seasons of wandering in darkness. But 
It's what we've been called to do. And it's just a reality of this. And we, we can, and he, and he welcomes this. We know through the story of Job, we know through the story of Samson, we know through the, the story of Abraham. God wants us to cling to the goodness of him in spite of us wandering in our darkness. Let's pray. Father, our prayer is that this story would help us put a couple of pieces together. Not the whole, we don't get the whole picture. We don't get the satisfaction of stepping back from the entire puzzle that's been solved and be like, oh, that's why it all happened. But perhaps a few pieces come together and the inspiration to cling to uh, your goodness. And also the, 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 the knowing that even for Abraham later in life, there, there's like a human element that falls in, in the, you know, that he falls back into. And we look at our own lives and how we've, oftentimes verbally said, I trust you, I trust you. And we do our own thing and we just, we, we wanna do it, but we don't find ourselves not doing it. That that has been a part of your story. And that yet you do not run from those relationships. You do everything with your power to reconcile those relationships unto yourself. To promise to walk through us or with us through suffering and to be good. We cling to that hope. Give us the wisdom to know what that looks like in our life. Curse to act on it in your name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. If you've got more questions about the church or community group options for connecting with East Lakers outside of Sunday mornings, I'd encourage you to check out our website, eastlaketricities.com, or better yet, download our app by searching East Lake Tri-Cities in your favorite app store.